0: Welcome to the Stonebridge Church podcast. Watch us live every Sunday morning at 9:30 or 11:05 a.m. at goSBlive.com, or visit us in person. You can find directions at goStonebridge.com. Connect with us on our social media at Facebook.com/goStonebridge and our Instagram at sbchurch. Well, no, I am just to let you know, Brian did not fully cooperate because I tried to talk him into being lowered down from the ceiling and coming all the way down and, you know, and being left here on a pallet. And then we could tell him to take his guitar and walk. And, you know, so uh, he did did not do that. I don't know why, it would have been a lot of fun. Uh, We'd had to change our topic. So if he had, Brian's a trooper, he'd need to come up here and do this because he loves to lead worship and he loves to uh, sing with you guys. He just has such a, a genuine heart and a bum Achilles tendon, but that's all right. It will heal. Uh, so, uh, when we started this series, one of the things that, uh, that I like about talking about Jesus as King, not just as how we normally refer to Jesus, our Savior, He's our Rescuer. Yes, uh, we love the old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, but Jesus is also a King. And it's so important that we understand why Jesus comes as a King and our need for a King. That's what we talked about last week. We, we don't like it. And yet, at the same time, we also recognize that we need someone uh, who is just, who is honest, who will do what they say, who, you know, that's the kind of king that we would look for, and most of the time, it's what people would say, that's the kind of king I would follow. Yeah, exactly. That's who Jesus is. And today, I want to talk to you about what kind of king he is, because a lot of us just sort of uh, assume, well, he, you know, in his day, he's a human being, so... He would be a king like I would be a king. I'd look out after my own needs maybe, you know, before I look out after someone else's needs. Uh, we look historically at kings and queens and rulers and all those who've come. And we, we recognize that even though some of them may have done some good things, there's also a lot of bad that they have done because of their position and they could do it and the way they saw things. And last week we, we opened the door to this one guy in Jesus' day named Herod. Remember him? He's actually called Herod the Great, and that's his designation of who he is, and everyone had to call him Herod the Great because you don't want to cross Herod. And and the truth is, Herod was brilliant. I mean, he was an Architect, he was. He was brilliant in the educational field, the philosophy. I mean, he knew how to politic like no one else. He knew how to go to Rome and to keep Caesar happy, and at the same time, what Herod would do when he came to the Jewish people of uh, this part where he was the king of this region, he would try to keep the Hebrews, the Jewish people, happy. They wanted a king who was Jewish, and so he tried to work his way in because he was partially Jewish. But he tried to work his way in to say, no, I'm really one of you. I'm and, and the biggest thing he did with that was he built a temple. You may not know that. I know most people think, well, Solomon built the temple. He did. And that temple was destroyed. And then they came back and tried to, uh, to rebuild it, not to the where it was when, when Solomon was, was around. But Herod comes back, and Herod does something that is spectacular. Herod builds a temple like no other temple has ever been built. I love to do this part, so you know, if I get excited, please uh, bear with me for a second. The the foundation of Herod's temple, I mean the slab, you know, if you're building a house, so you're gonna lay a, a slab, a foundation that makes it all level so you can build on it. The foundation of his temple was 35 to 37 acres. That was the size of it. So if you came in from research for us, And you saw our property, and you came all the way to this building, and maybe you went a little past this building toward 1488. If you get uh, past the crosses and the field right here, about there at the end of that building, that would be 35 acres. And this was all done with stone. You know, we would do it with, I call liquid rock, right? Concrete. We just pour it, it sets and all. They would cut the stones. And carry the stones. And if you ever uh, see pictures of Israel, in fact, we're going there in April. If you want to go with us right after Easter, we're headed to, uh, um, to see all this. There's a place called the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. It's this enormous cut stone foundation that they go and the, and the Jews, the Orthodox, go and they pray and they put their prayers on little pieces of paper and they stick them in the cracks in the foundation. That's what that is. That's the slab because everything about the temple was destroyed. Herod built the temple to be the greatest temple ever constructed, and he built it to be, um, uh, be uh, earthquake proof, the great uh, destroyer of buildings in his day, and he did. One of the stones in the slab weighs over 200 tons. That's 400,000 pounds, I know you think, how did they do something like that? Well, if you watch, you know, the aliens thing, you'll know because it was aliens who came, okay. It, it's amazing what you can do uh, with the manpower and it's amazing what they could do with their technology and their ingenuity in their day with what they had. And so Herod built this and even the Jewish people thought the temple will never, ever, ever be destroyed, which Herod's like, that's right. And I built it, <laughs> you know, your great ruler, right? And, of course, uh, it was destroyed because there's just one thing. Earthquake wouldn't take it down, but the entire Roman army might because they, uh, they didn't have any problem tearing down buildings. Now, the whole point of this is Herod wanted to be a great man. Herod wanted to be a ruler. And Herod saw anything that was a threat to his being ruler as something that he was going to deal with. And last week, we looked at the story of how the wise men came from a foreign land. They came from somewhere up in the Persian area. The Magi were called kingmakers. They were royal astrologers. And they would establish the right of a king to be born, to say in the stars it has predicted, we've seen a star. And and of, of all the crazy things you would think, they show up in Jerusalem because they say we have seen a star that told us about the birth of the king of the Jews a new king probably a new dynasty for them and they come to the only logical place you would come to looking for the king of the Jews to Jerusalem and when they say we have come looking for the king of the Jews Herod is really excited isn't he? That's right exactly thank you for that no Herod is really upset he is like are you kidding me king of the Jews that's what I'm gonna fight against any threat to my rule, including if if it's a child born and people are saying, well, like this child came from God himself. He didn't care because he saw the end goal as establishing himself and his rule and his power. And everything that Herod did as far as the Jewish people was concerned was in a way of trying to win them over. And Herod was great at going to the Caesar when he got in trouble because Herod actually backed the wrong Caesar who lost. Remember the uh, Cleopatra, Mark Anthony and all that? He backed the wrong Caesar. And so when when his Caesar lost, he went back to the new Caesar and he still schmoozed him into, I'm your man. And he said, okay, you know, because Herod Herod was powerful. So much so that when Herod uh, uh, finds out where the child is born, and the wise men go all the way down looking for him below Jerusalem in Bethlehem. He says to them, remember his statement? He says, now when you go and you find the child, come back and tell me what? Where I can find him. Oh, so that I can worship him too. You think anybody trusted Herod was going to worship him? In fact, Herod was always a master politician. He doesn't go looking for the child. He sends these these uh, astrologers from the, from the east to look for him. And of course, when they go a different way, that's how we finished last week, they decide to go home by a different way because an angel tells them, you don't want to go back to Herod. So they go a different way to go back to their homeland. Herod sends an army or some soldiers down into Bethlehem. He doesn't go himself, but he sends them down. He knows the time that the child was born or at least the time that they told him the star appeared. And so they were sent down to kill every male child two years and younger in the area, in the region. Because Herod would take no chances. Because did Herod care about the people that lived in there? Not as much as he cared about his power and his position. So wiping out even children that would be innocent, and that that was not a problem with him. And just to let you know, that's why we think the child was about two years old then. But more than likely, the child was probably a year and a half, maybe a year, when the star appeared. Because he wasn't going to take any chances. He wanted to make sure he covered a wide enough area to get this threat to his kingdom. Now, that was Herod. The reason I bring that up is because what king do you want to serve? Would you want to serve a king like Herod? A lot of people did. And Herod, uh, one of the things, he was so ruthless, he was so cruel, that Herod, when he died, Herod had some of the leading uh, people in Jerusalem executed, as he said, so that there will be weeping at the death of Herod. Of course, they weren't weeping for his death. They were probably cheering and celebrating with his death. But they were weeping because of what he did. What kind of king do you want to serve? I actually put in your outline, too, what kind of kingdom are you looking for? The reason I said that is because the kind of kingdom that you're looking for is going to be reflected in the kind of king that you're looking for. And when God sends Jesus into the world, he is a different kind of king than every king who had come before. The reason is because he doesn't have the same motivation. He's not looking out what is best for him. He's not looking out for his reputation. In fact, Jesus does not even come going after those who are a threat to him he doesn't instead jesus does something very strange to us jesus comes and he reaches out to those who are actually persecuting him and actually want his death and he converts he changes the hearts of those types of people the jews were only looking for a king that would help them overthrow rome look out for jewish interests but God was looking for a king or God was sending a king that would look out for the interests of all the people who would acknowledge and they would give themselves and accept the king. That was the, that was the key factor, to give themselves to the king because you wanted this, this uh, kind of king kingdom. If you remember last week, we finished with uh, this last paragraph out of Matthew's uh, version of the gospel. It says, um, as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. It's talking about uh, Joseph. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. I like this because there were a lot of things that Joseph could have been afraid of. He could have been afraid of the scandal that that Mary is gonna have a child, and yet we are engaged. I tell you, in the Jewish tradition, um, they would not have relations yet, so that would have said mm, Somebody's been cheating here, but the angel says don't be afraid of this Don't be afraid of what could happen or what would be said Don't be afraid of the culture around you don't be afraid of the Herod or anything Just do what you've been asked to do uh, by God and he says the angel says this for within her was con- This child was conceived by the Holy Spirit and she will have a son and you were to name him Jesus for he will, catch this, he will do what? He will save his people from their sins. Now, I know you might think, well, wait a minute, that, but they don't need to be saved from their sins. They need to be saved from Herod's, right? Or they need to be saved you know, from Caesar's, or they need to be saved from the evil people and the wicked people are there. But here's the one thing that we have to struggle with. If you were king, if you were Caesar, if you were Herod, if you were smart enough to build the things that he built, if you were cunning enough to have the political influence that he had to gain this power, what, king would, what kind of king would you be? What kind of queen would you be? Because if we, leave, if we look deep inside ourselves, we recognize that something inside of, our, of us is also reflected in Herod and reflected in Caesar, the same sorts of ideas are sort of lodged there. Who's going to rescue us from those things? Who's going to make it so that we're not the enemy? We're not the person fighting against the desires and the the plans of God Himself. You know, whenever um, there are these warnings in the Scripture not to sin. Uh, Whenever the law is laid down, I know people think, well, you know, he's talking about don't cuss, you know, don't chew tobacco, uh, you know, as as I grew up, don't date girls who do, and uh, I never dated a girl who chewed tobacco, just to let you know, so, uh, and that's that's what we think about, but what he's really talking about is who's going to rescue us, who will save us from what is inside of us that turns us against God, causes us to fight against God god and his kingdom and and the whole point of how jesus came is jesus is not out there with a sword yet i mean there will be a day but he's not there with a sword you know taking down his enemies because no one is smart enough to outthink god and his plans and what he will do right that's the whole point of the story and so in, in a sense kind of under the radar the king is born and under the radar, the king lives. In that same chapter, you, you will read that the angel comes to Joseph and Mary and says, you know, because there are those who will kill the child and will kill you, you are to pack up and go down to Egypt. And it even says, and this will fulfill the prophecy where it says, and, and the, uh, um, the Messiah comes out of Egypt. Yeah, you go down to Egypt, you stay there until I tell you that it's safe, and then you come back. And that's exactly what happened, Herod dies, and the angel comes back and says, it's now safe because all those who are looking to kill the child are, uh, are gone. They're not in power anymore so that you can come back. And they actually come back and they go up to the north uh, because Jerusalem is in the south of Israel. They go up to the north above uh, Samaria and they go up to the, the Galilee area. And that's where they live in, in Nazareth of Galilee. It's, it's not what you think. It's not the religious place. It's not the, the place of the temple. It's not the place of Jerusalem. In fact, early on, um, there's a guy named Philip, and when Jesus you know, is, becomes an adult and he calls his disciples, he says, hey, come and follow me. He, he follows him, then he goes to his brother, Nathaniel, and he said, hey, come with us. I think we've found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And does anybody remember what Nathaniel said to his brother, anybody remember? Can anything good come out of? Yeah, that's that was his comment, right? Can anything? It's almost like saying that. Wait a minute, but can there be anybody good that you know came out of you know the University of Texas or Baylor University? I mean, you know, you know how we are, right? Those aren't our kind of people. Those aren't you know the people, right? That's that's just the way we we think and we we show how we see things. And he thought that because this area that Jesus lives in is is really a lot more Gentile than it is Jewish, and it really had a bad reputation. It did. It had a really bad reputation. That's where he lives. That's where he grows up, under the radar. It's not where you thought you would find the king that God himself has sent to absolutely change the world, change the world. And I I did this a couple weeks ago. I told you that. You know, by the, by the year, this is not my, under, you know, my, my stuff, it's historians that do it. By 40 AD, they believe there were probably about 1,000 Christians in the world. Uh, so that's, you know, five to eight years after Jesus' death and resurrection. By 100 AD, they say that there were probably seven to 10,000 Christians in the world. Pretty good growth, especially since Rome fought against Christianity. There's, there's no social media. There's no billboards, there's no platform. They can't look to a government to help promote them. There are no champions. The only thing they do is they spread the message, the gospel, which is always maligned by their enemies. Said, oh yeah, no, you don't want to believe that. Uh, they were called those who practice all sorts of immoral things. They had agape feasts, love feasts, it's, you know, they're into orgies and things like that. I mean, they were always maligned. They were said they eat their children, right? They talk about sacrificing and all that, you know, so they always maligned them. By 200 AD, it's grown from uh, about seven to 10,000 to 200,000. It's still growing. As, as Rome goes against it, fights against it, fights against it, tries to promote something else. By 300 AD, there are um, now five to six million Christians in the, in the Roman Empire. And so when when Constantine, don't know his motivation, just to let you know, um, when Constantine comes around in, in 324 and he paints the cross on his shields and he makes a change and says, Christianity is it. That's what we're going to Hold to. Remember, by now, there's probably a tenth of the Roman Empire are believers, even though it is persecuted and it might cost you your life if anyone finds out you're a Christian. Yet it has grown to 10%. And Constantine is smart. You know, what's the old saying? If you can't beat them, what? Yeah, but Constantine's a politician. So his is if you can't beat them take it over that's his idea so let's let's take christianity use it for our good we will promote it we will make it a part of the kingdom now, you may not know this but in the in his capital city in 322 constantine everybody who became a christian in that city got 24 pieces of gold and a new white suit that was what he did so is that going to help people become christians well a lot of people identified that way and if you want to be in a, a position of power or a political office? Would it be better for you to say that you're a Christian? Well, yeah, because Constantine is now for this. Does it help the movement? It does not. Because the motivation is totally different now than it was when it was there for 300 years. And I know you think, well, what are you trying to say? What, are you? what I'm trying to say is, listen, it's not that we don't try to create a better world. It's not that we don't work within the the, the realms of where we live and and, and and how we live. I mean, we as a church, we promote, yes, we do. But we understand this, and this is what you have to understand: it's the gospel that changes the life. It's the gospel that changes the heart. It's not the politics, it's not the income, it's not the business, it's the gospel. And I don't know about you, but for me, when someone comes to me and wants me to know that they're a Christian, therefore you need to buy my product, I'm hesitant. I am. I just want to know that you believe and that you follow, and I'll figure that out by doing what? Getting to know you, watching your life. Sure. I don't have to just have it painted on the shields of your soldiers to be able to understand it. It's not an emblem to take out into the world and think somehow, you know, all the vampires will fall down or all the evil, you know, that's, that's not what it is. It's that it's Jesus Christ was real. He was alive. The kingdom grew. And like I love to tell people now, you know how many Christians are now in the world? 2.2 billion Christians. And Christianity grows the fastest in the world today in the areas of the world where it is still persecuted, where it is still illegal where it is still shut down yes that's where it grows the most because the message has the biggest impact on a life there because why because he was born to do one thing save people from their sins save his people the jewish people from their sins save the gentile people from their sins save the people in jerusalem from their sins save the people up in nazareth where can anything good come from nazareth from their sins right he was the king who had the power, the ability to save. This is a a Rebecca McLaughlin has a little bitty book um, called, uh, Is Christmas Unbelievable? And it's it's a really good little book. You can buy it for like a dollar or two. And in there, she says this, she said, the first century Jews were waiting for someone, catch this, to save them from who? The Romans, from their political enemies, from, from. From the people, you know, that don't believe or see things like that. That's what they were looking for. But the angel's words suggest that they had a bigger problem, a bigger issue. And when we understand what Jesus has uh, come to do on that bigger issue, that's really what changes uh, uh, how we we believe and how we act. So why does Jesus not look like um, any other king? Well, um, in John chapter 6, this is this one verse. Uh, where Jesus, um, he has just fed thousands of people and so the people love Jesus because you know he, he does something, it's, it's really funny because it's attached to Moses. Moses was their great leader and the one that they, they lifted up and Moses you know fed the people in the wilderness, remember the manna fell out of heaven? They attribute that to Moses giving them bread so Jesus is there and the Passover has come And uh, there are thousands and thousands of people there. And he says, uh, the disciples say we need to send them away because there's there's not enough food here. Certainly can't celebrate the Passover. And Jesus says, no, you feed them. And so he collects, remember, you know the story, he collects a little bit of food and he hands it out. And when it comes back, there's more than there was when it went out. And everyone ate their fill. So they see this as a, wow, man, this guy's a miracle worker. This is the guy we need as a king. This is the guy who can overthrow Rome for us. And then this is, this is what Jesus, um, this is what it says about Jesus is perceiving then that they were about to come, catch this, and take him by force to make him what? Yeah, we're gonna make you our king. You're the guy that we want. We're gonna, you're the one that, that we have picked as our king. Jesus does what? He withdraws again to the mountain alone. He goes away by himself why would Jesus do this? That's not the king he was going to be. In fact, even bigger than that, Jesus withdraws because he doesn't need people to make him king. We need him to set us free. He came for this purpose. He didn't come to win any political uh, battles. He didn't come to win our Acclaim. He didn't win to come celebrate the miracles. That, the miracles were just proof of who he was. He came to rule and to rule in a way that would be better for us and better for the world. It would be the rule that God had, had planned. So here's, here is John's gospel. So um, I know that most of the time when Christmas comes along, we don't read out of John's gospel, the first part. But I'm going to jump to John's gospel because I think that it's it different than Matthew Uh, Mark's version and Luke's version, John sort of goes after uh, what Jesus did, what he said, and why and why it matters. And it's one of the reasons in Western culture we are so drawn to John's version of the gospel, his story, telling it from uh, how he saw it or the part that he thought was important. And John starts his gospel very differently. Uh, We read, you know, Matthew, how he starts his with this genealogy tracing Jesus all the way back to David and actually going back further than that all the way to Abraham which was key to understand the link that he had to Abraham but John is different John is going to kind of jump into this this philosophical theological understanding you understand why Jesus came and so you've probably heard it before and maybe you've even struggled with some of this here's what he says he says in the beginning say this with me in the beginning the the word already existed. And I, I put in your uh, outline, it won't pop on the screen. This is the Greek word logos. And, and this this word um, may mean speech, it might mean a, uh, a message, it might mean words. So it's it's this, this uh, term that he uses and it actually becomes for John a title for Jesus. The logos, um, he says, uh, already existed. Then he goes and says, the word, the logos was with God and the word what? Was God, what? So he's in relationship with God, the Father. There, there's a, this eternal relationship and he is actually God with the Father. And I know that's a strange thing for us. It's theologically called the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. A lot of us still struggle, struggle with the concept, but he, he clearly points to it and, and he didn't have a problem with it. Um, in verse two, he says he existed in the beginning with God. He created everything through him, I mean, God created everything through him, the Word. Now he's given him personality. He's identified him as intelligence, as a, as a person. Not just a thing or a force, but he's identified him as a person. He says, um, uh, God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. The Word, catch this, gave life to everything. That was created. And his life brought, uh-oh, a new word. Brought what? Light to everyone. That, he's talking about understanding. You, 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 you understand, you get it. Now that he has come, you say, oh, that's what it's all about. That's how it works. That's the kingdom that God is building. If you just look at the king, you understand what the kingdom is really all about. And then he says this in verse five. He says, the light shines in the what? The darkness. And he says "And the darkness can never extinguish it. And I put in there just just so you would know, it can also be translated that the darkness could never understand it or the darkness could never comprehend what the word came to do, what Jesus came to do and didn't get it because it's not the way the world works outside of God. Outside of God, we live in darkness. That means we lack understanding, that means we don't know what to do. We talked about this last week. We don't know what to do with our guilt. I mean, the, because the, you know, we deny it or we blame somebody else for what we're guilty. It's not really my fault. It's, you know, I mean, we, we, we just don't know what to do with it. But when he comes, all of a sudden, there's an answer for it. That's, that's the light that comes in the darkness. And the darkness comes to give us direction and protection. He is our protector. He is our director. He is the one who will lead us um, and to also guide us. Let me take a quick little uh, detour because I'm gonna stay in John chapter one. But let me jump, quick little detour. On the back side of your outline, if you to look at this, this, is Matthew chapter number four. Um, this is when uh, Jesus is, has gone, uh, in Matthew's uh, gospel, he's gone away into the mountain to be tempted. Do you remember that? And Jesus goes away and it's really interesting because if you look at the temptation, of Jesus by who he is, it will make perfect sense to you. He says, hey, if you are the son of God, if you're the king, if you're the ruler, if you're the one God's promised, then command these stones to be my bread because he's been fasting for 40 days. It's a a temptation to tell Jesus, hey, be the kind of king that people will accept. Be the kind of king that people are used to, who look out after themselves, their own desires. They use their position for themselves. Hey, no one would fault you. You have the power to transform and change. Feed yourself. Give, give yourself what you want. Or the second temptation is to put on a show. You know, you're talented. You're skilled. Just think about how impressed people will be if they see you doing miracles. And so he takes him up to, the, to a high peak, probably the the top of the temple in a vision and says, just cast yourself off because the angels will catch you. They won't let you die. I mean, just think about if that happens and everywhere you go, jump off a cliff and, hey, I'm still, you know, hey, just think about how people will rally to you. Be a different kind of king, the kind of king that if we could be that king, we would do it. That's how we would do it. And then he finally gets to the, to the bottom line, the point of it, which is really telling as far as the kingdoms of the world. He says, look, worship, this is Satan, worship me. I hold the keys to all the kingdoms. I own it all and I will give you these things. And Jesus says, doesn't work that way. You worship only one, the Lord God. So it's a temptation for Jesus To be the kind of king that the world understands and the world sees, and in being that kind of king, attract an army, followers who will go in, and they will control and manipulate the world. And Jesus flat out rejects it, and he he says no. And this is where this passage comes from. Right after that, it says, when Jesus heard that John, John the Baptist, had been arrested, he left Judea, so that's in the south in Jerusalem, where he was at this time, and he returned north. Galilee. He went first to Nazareth. That's where he was raised um, uh, as a child with his family. Then he left there and he moved to Capernaum beside the Sea of Galilee. So that's up a little further north and then over uh, to the east uh, on the top of the Sea of Galilee is where those areas are. He says, it is the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. And here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 9. He says, in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in what? Darkness, confusion. They don't know what they're looking for. Have seen a great what? Light. This is it. This is what you're looking for. This is what the king is like this is what the kingdom of God will be like and for those who live in the land where death cast its shadow a light he says has shined and so Matthew goes ahead and writes he says from then on Jesus began to preach listen to this repent from your sins turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is what it's near <laughs> it was near and if you if you if you look at it in this light you understand what repentance is right It's not stop cussing, put that tobacco down. That's not what what he's talking about. Those may be sins in our eyes. He's talking about stop turning away from God to another way and turn, repent. That's what repent means. Change your mind, rethink this, figure this out. Turn back to who? God. Because he has sent his son into the world. The time is now, and it was uh, for them. So let me jump back into John's... uh, Uh, Gospel, the very first chapter, and I'll finish with this. He says, um, God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light. Now you understand what that means, the light, so that everyone might believe because of his testimony, John's testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light, the one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. He came into, every, in, uh, into the very world he created. But, catch this, absolutely true. The world did not, what? They didn't recognize him. That's, that can't be the king. That, that's not what we're looking for. That's, that's not how we see it. He came to his own people. And even they, oh, here's even a stronger word, even they rejected him. But to all who believed in him, who accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God they are reborn not a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan but a birth that comes from God so the world became human Uh, I'm sorry so the word became human and made his home among us he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness and we have seen his glory the glory of the Father's one and only Son. John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, this is the one I was talking about when I said, someone is coming after me who is far, catch this, far greater than I am, for he existed long, what? Before me, what? Yeah, so this is someone who comes after me, but he actually existed long before me because he was God. In verse 16, it says, From his abundance, we have all received one gracious blessing after another. And he's talking about the whole world has received his gracious blessing one after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus the Christ that's the king. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son is himself God and is near to the Father's heart. He has done what? He has revealed him to us. So the whole point of what John is saying is still the same thing to us. Recognize the king. Understand who the king is. Understand why the king is different from all the other rulers that have ever lived. All those uh, people who look for power and look for position and have dual motives and because we understand it, because yeah, we have the same things sometimes. But there's a king who is not that way. And this king is absolutely just, but he's absolutely gracious and kind and forgiving. And rather than coming into the world initially to judge, he actually comes in the world to draw people to himself and to sacrifice, sacrifice himself for others. As a song a long time ago was written, have you ever heard of a king where he gives his life for the people? No. We know of kings where they require the people to sacrifice their life for his kingship and for his position because we must have the king, but never a king who would come and sacrifice his life to rescue and to save us. That's because there's a kingdom, and he wants us in the kingdom. And we're in the kingdom because we accept the king. We believe in the king and who he is. We're gonna celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper because uh, after Jesus' death and resurrection, it was one of those things that the believers, when they gathered together in order to remember who Jesus was and what he had done, they would celebrate it on a regular basis we don't really know how often uh, one of my little theories um, so you can just chalk it up as a Steve theory, so that's about all the credibility it holds is maybe that's where even our blessings before the meals came because we we remember what he has done when we stop we gather with those that are friends or family and we eat a meal together we remember why we have the good things that we have because of what Jesus Christ did for us and Jesus does this tied to the Passover meal. Passover meal reflected back all the way to Moses when um, the people were freed out of Egypt and they gathered for Passover and they painted their doorposts with the blood of a lamb so that the angel of death would pass over them but would not pass over those who did not paint their doorposts with the blood of the lamb and in doing this Pharaoh let the people go. He freed them. So Jesus takes it all the way back to that, but he says new meaning, new idea. It's good for you to understand what he did in Egypt, but even that was a pointer to the Lamb of God who would give his life for us. He would free us from our sins. Yes, he freed them from the Egyptians. He's freed us from the Romans, right? <laughs> but there are still rulers and still people who would take us over and would conquer us or try to but he is our protector he is our strength until the day that he sets it all back right so Jesus he takes the bread Passover bread I know yours is little like mine he took a big loaf and he broke it he snapped it and he said this is my body it's broken for you eat this and remember it's As was tradition in the Passover celebration, he passed a cup of wine at the end of the meal, but he gave this cup new meaning also. He said, this is my blood. It's the blood of a new covenant. It's a new relationship. In fact, it's a new life. I love to tell this story. I have a friend, he suffered from cancer. He got a blood transfusion. I'm sorry, a bone marrow, a transplant and it didn't work. They used stem cells from his own body and so eventually he had to go to his sister's stem cells. He got a a bone marrow transplant from her. She was a perfect match except for one thing. Her blood type was different from his. I said, well, is that not a problem? He said, well, the only problem with it was my blood type now became her blood type. He was A negative and now he is O positive. And he says his body has to relearn what it is to have O positive blood. Flowing through its veins instead of A negative. And I said, oh, what a great illustration. Because this is what Jesus does for us. He gives us a new life living inside of us, a new light, a new understanding. We don't see it the same way. We We don't live out this life in the same way. Yeah, we still have our sin. We still struggle. It's still there. But there's something else shining in the darkness inside of us and giving us life. It is the life, the blood of Jesus himself. John will later write, same guy, later write, his old age. He will say, um, we walk in the light as he himself is in the light and we have fellowship with one another and the blood of his son cleanses us from all our sins. Dear Heavenly Father, We thank you that you sent your son, not in the way we wanted, or even in the way that we could have predicted what he would be like. But Jesus came in the way that we needed. And he even had to come and explain to us and convince us of what our need really was so that we could accept, believe, we could be born again. We can become children of God because of the Son of God who gave his life for us. Lord, especially during this time, it's a reflection looking back on what happened 2,000 years ago. We look back and we see who he was and what he did and we recognize that he is still alive today, evidenced by the fact that more and more people around the world Continue to hear the message, hear who he is. They give their heart to him. They trust him. And he changes their destiny. If you're here and you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, he's the only one that came from the Father. He's the only one that can make the claims that he made. He's the only king who's ever given his life for his people because of his great love and compassion. What a great time, Christmas season, to say, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe you're the king. You're the one that was planned long, long ago. You existed well before the kingdoms of this world. And your promise of a kingdom still to come is proven by your life and what continues to happen. In my struggles and my difficulties, Lord, I do believe in you. Come live in my heart. Reshape my life in Jesus' name.